fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome to the night of the Midsummer Classic, and hopefully it's going to be a classic episode of The Kale Clark Show. You're going to have to be the judge of that. You can call in. Let me know what you think throughout the program. 888-914-914. 9149. It's going to be a Midsummer Night's Dream, as Shakespeare would say. We're going to talk about... Now, why do I say it's the Midsummer Classic? Well, of course, tonight is the All-Star Game for Major League Baseball. That is called the Midsummer Classic. I can't believe summer's half over already. I guess that's what that means as well. And I'm going to talk about one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. It involves Bo Jackson, Ronald Reagan... And Vin Scully. You're not going to want to miss this story. We're going to talk about a Blue Jay who flew very high into the Pacific Northwestern air last night. Also, guess what? Today is the feast day of a Catholic All-Star, certainly in the Catholic Hall of Fame. And that would be St. Benedict of Nursia. You're not going to want to miss this. This is incredible. So let me give out that phone number once again, 888 914-9149. You can also email the program at klcale at relevantradio.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at klclark, C-A-L-E, Clark with me. Great place to get a message to me. Yeah, if you don't want to email, you can always try sending me a direct message or tagging me on Twitter. Well, yeah, today is the feast day of St. Benedict, and, and I, I just love reading about church history, as you know, and uh, Producer Jim, I think you're going to really love this show, because you, you love the history stuff as well. Now, if St. Anthony of the Desert really changed the future of the world, changed the church, and, and really changed the, the direction of all history by becoming a monk, by becoming the first monk, and he really did. And when he answered God's call, and this happened when he was at Mass, and he was late for Mass, actually, and he walked in during the Gospel reading, and something that he heard from the lips of Jesus, transmitted through the Gospel, uh, through the priest reading the Gospel at Mass, changed the direction of his life and the world, became the first monk. And it was the monks who really saved civilization. After the Roman Empire fell apart, the barbarian hordes descended, they saved all the books, they saved the scriptures, they really saved culture. But St. Benedict really took the next step. And you might say, what does this have to do with me, Kale? Because I'm not a monk. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a religious. I, I'm, if you're a lady listening to me today, you might be saying, I'm not a nun. What does this matter to me? Well, it does matter to you. There's going to be mega application to your life. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but next time you're in a bookstore, check it out. I, I've seen books about monks in the business section of bookstores. Monk mode is really popular, I think, in, in general right now. There, there's a book that came out a couple years ago by Rod Dreher called The Benedict Option. Now, I somebody actually just lent me that book a couple of weeks ago. I have not read it yet, have not had the leisure to, or the time to read it yet. So I, I'm sure many people are going to ask questions about that. The Benedict Option... Um, I, I haven't read it, so I can't really comment on it. But but there are so many books about monks out there trying to relate their lifestyle to the contemporary world. And a lot of people are finding it really attractive. There's a book that came out recently called In Praise of the Useless Life, A Monk's Memoir. <laughs> of course, a monk's life is not useless, but people seem, seem to think that they are doing useless things. 
uh, How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life. That's another uh, title that's pretty popular these days. Uh, and, of course, Eastern spirituality, which is not Catholic spirituality, but Tibetan monks. There are lots of books about them that kind of correlate to pop culture. A Monk's Guide to a Clean House and Mind. I'd love to have uh, both of those things. <laughs> if you could see my office right now, oh, my goodness. I like to think I'm a mad genius, but my wife probably explains it otherwise. But <laughs> I know where everything is. Billy, under all these books and papers, I, I know where everything is. Um, yeah, there's, all, there's all kinds of books like that that are out there uh, trying to relate uh, the monk as a CEO, for example, that, that sort of thing. You see this, this stuff all the time. And so there, there is really a lot that we can learn from it, even if we're not monks. And basically St. Benedict, what, what he did, by the way, he was born in the year 480 AD in a place called Nursia. It's a small town in Italy. And his parents were pretty well off. And when, when, they were, when he was 17 years old, they sent him off to Rome for studies, and they were going to foot the bill. And so he went to Rome, and Benedict was disgusted, absolutely disgusted by the immoral lifestyle, the, the partying that was going on among the students. It, it's amazing. The, the more times change, the more they stay the same. Isn't that true? So he, I guess it was Frosh Week in Rome. I don't know. But he, he was just aghast at all the immorality. He said, enough of this. This is not the life for me. I don't want anything to do with this. So he decided that he was going to be a hermit. He went out into the desert. Now, so Benedict was really kind of the father of the Western part of the church, the Western monasticism, as it were. And in, in the East, like St. Anthony of the Desert, the, the Eastern monks were a little bit different. They were, they were much more into renunciation, almost being very, very harsh with the body, uh, mortifications, if you will. And, and really, the, the reason why they were doing that, there are lots of reasons why they did it, but it was more so for the purpose of renunciation. But in the Western part of the church, following Benedict's example, it wasn't just for punishing the body and, and making it your, you know, becoming the master of yourself. Uh, St. Paul said this in the, in the New Testament, hey, I, I punish my body, I pummel my body, you know, to, to and I don't think he's, you know, knocking himself in the in the in the face or, you know, uh, in front of the mirror or anything like that. It's it's um, it's not like Fight Club. He wasn't he wasn't doing that. But the, the purpose of what he was saying is that I've got to get control of my physical body, or my appetites are going to control me. I'll become a slave to my passions. I don't want that. So Benedict, Benedict of Nursia, he really wanted th this idea of you know physical mortifications. It was for the purpose of training the body and the soul for a mission. It was for a purpose. It was for a mission in the world. The other thing, too, that's different about the monks in the western part of the church, which would include Rome, of course, was they weren't so much about solitude, whereas the, the eastern, the desert fathers of the east were really about solitude, about getting away and, and getting in a cave and digging a hole in the ground and just kind of getting away from it all, literally, and just being alone with God. But And I know I'm kind of drawing broad generalizations here, but in the western part of the church, the monks were much more about organizing community, about learning how to live together. So Benedict, he grew up under the, the rule of the Ostrogoths. Uh, they were kind of politically dominant. I don't want to get into that. We could talk about that another time. But there, the church had just been through this huge suffering and still kind of was suffering because of the false teachings of Arius, the Arian controversy, all kinds of persecutions. Those who held the Orthodox Catholic faith suffered a lot. 
Um, but the Orthodox faith, of course, would prevail. And, and so Benedict, you know, he just really didn't like the Frosh Week aspect of Rome, uh, the University of Rome, as it were. And he's like, I'm out of here. I don't want to party with these kids. These, these, they're going to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to live in a cave. And so he's, he was by himself for a little bit, but this always happens with these holy monks. Their lifestyle, their holiness attracts others. True holiness always draws a crowd, always draws a crowd. I think about somebody like Mother Teresa, obscure, nobody really knew who she was, but because of what she was doing, her extreme holiness, people started to take notice and they were really drawn to it because they saw Christ in her. And so that's what happened with Benedict. Eventually people started coming to him out in the desert they said, hey, we want, to, we want to be like you. We want to, we want to form a community. So he's like, okay. So he moved everybody, all these young guys that wanted to follow him. They went to a place called Monte Cassino. And by the way, Monte Cassino, I've never been there, uh, but I'm told there is no casino in Monte Cassino. No, it's not a place for a casino. Um, you can't go on a double pilgrimage to the casino and to the holy site. No, it's not there. Uh, Monte Cassino is, is simply this sort of mountainous area very remote and that's where he sort of founded the first monastery but when when he got there this this was still a thing back in benedict's time there were there was paganism everywhere it's not like there isn't today right it just comes in a different form but there were there were pagan altars that were set up and they when he first got there with his friends they found this grove this quote-unquote sacred grove and there were local people there that were celebrating worshiping pagan gods and the first thing that he did was he cut down all the trees, overturned the pagan altar, busted it up, and he said, this is where we're going to build the monastery, right in this very spot. You probably also know about his sister, St. Scholastica, yeah, brother and sister saints. And she also was, was very, very close by, and they had a great spiritual friendship as well as being brothers and si- brother and sister. And she started a community for nuns, essentially for women. And Benedict be- began getting this great reputation for holiness, so much so that the Ostrogoth king went to visit him. He wanted to meet him. And <laughs> it's a little bit like, I don't know, King Charles coming to meet you or, or the president of the United States. I, I got to meet this guy for myself. And maybe the king of the Ostrogoths wanted to use this as sort of a photo op. He wanted to... <laughs> Uh, he wanted his followers the, to think he was a spiritual guy or something. Well, he did not get what he bargained for. When he went to meet Benedict, St. Benedict, the saint gave him an earful. He, he basically said, you're a tyrant. Um, you're, you are on the road to destruction. You're on the road to perdition. He had all these dire uh, apocalyptic prophecies for him. He's basically like, you you are nothing in the sight of God. You might think you're somebody, but but he anyways he he was he was not very fond of this guy, and so the king was pretty shocked. And and did he repent? I'll, I don't know. I don't know if he did in the end. Who knows? But but that was an interesting story from from his life. Certainly, he he wasn't a guy who gave in to human respect. That's for sure. You know what will they think? What will they say? Um, we we have to kind of be like that too. And when, when we 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 can't be afraid of people finding out that we're Catholics. And very often, there's a great temptation to do that. We, we want to fit in. We want to be invited to the office softball team party or whatever the case may be. We, we don't want to rock the boat necessarily. Um, the church doesn't have, in some quarters, the greatest reputation. And we, we often want to just kind of keep silent. And, and 
keep on keeping on, but we can't do that. We, we can't, I'm not saying walk around with a pectoral cross around your neck. I did actually know a guy who did that. He's a lay guy or this massive iron crucifix around his neck, you know, over his dress shirt. I mean, come on, man. Like, I don't, I don't think that that, I mean, maybe that's what God wanted him to do, <laughs> but I, I don't think that's necessarily, uh, should be our calling card. Having said that, uh, it should be obvious, although we're not shoving it down people's throats, but it should be obvious that uh, we are followers of Jesus Christ. If you were on trial for being a Catholic, would there be enough evidence to convict you? But So we can't, we can't give in to human respect. Um, but the greatest thing that Benedict really did for the church and, and for the life of the monk uh, and going forward was the famous rule of St. Benedict. And you probably heard about this. This was such a an important document, and that really got the future of monasteries going uh, for the for the rest of time. And so it was very very wise. What Benedict did was really really smart, because he made sure in this rule, this set of this sort of code of conduct, if you will, for his monks, he, he didn't want to go to the extremes uh, of asceticism. Uh, like the the desert fathers of the east who would live alone. He no, he he thought let's let's be wise and let's be prudent about this. So they were they were strict. They were certainly disciplined for sure. But here, here's an example: the the desert monks they would they would really their diet consisted of essentially bread, water, and a little bit of salt. You you do need some sodium in your life. Very often, I don't know if this happened to you when you're sick and maybe you've got a virus and you're throwing up all the time, the doctor will say, hey, drink some Gatorade. It's got sodium in it. You need it. You need to replenish your electrolytes. Well, even the Desert Fathers kind of knew that. But Benedict said, no, we're not going to be that austere. You're going to have two meals a day. And by the way, those are going to be cooked dishes. It's going to be prepared. It's going to be some nice food there. Uh, It's a little bit like Liz in the Relevant Cafe at the Worldwide Headquarters of Relevant Radio. She makes some incredible meals. Um, and Benedict basically said, yeah, you're going to have two solid meals a day. And there's going to be fresh fruit. There's going to be vegetables. You've, and you've got to do this. You, this is a good application for us, too. We, we have to actually make sure that we're putting the right fuel in these machines called the human body. And uh, this is a big trend these days about diet. And people often talk about the American diet and all the chemicals that are allowed in food in the United States. And People will say, if you go on Twitter, there are a lot of threads out there about how this stuff can, if you're not careful, it can, it can kill you. And I have to do a lot more investigating on this. But I think we all know, just through common sense, that we tend to sometimes eat too much. We tend to eat some of the wrong stuff. You've got to take care of yourself to serve God better. So that you can serve God and serve other people better for longer and give more glory to God in his service. So that's part of it. you got to make sure you sleep well. At any rate... So the monks got two square meals a day and fruits and vegetables, all that stuff. And every monk also got a little bit, a very moderate amount of wine every day. And hey, so a little wine gladdens the, yeah, of course they weren't getting drunk or anything like that. It's a sin. It's a mortal sin to be drunk. But they they did get a little wine to gladden the heart, as, as the scriptures say. And not only that, when they went to bed, they didn't sleep on the floor. They didn't sleep on the ground. Last night we were talking about Jacob sleeping on a pillow of rock out in the wilderness. No, they actually got covers for their beds. They they got actual pillows. With the caveat that all of this stuff could go away if there were tough times. There are times of scarcity. They just had to simply be ready 
to be content with whatever was around. And, and this is very much, again, like St. Paul, because in his letter to the Philippians, he says, hey, I, I know how to exist and live for God when I've got food on the table, when I've got things that I need. I also know how to abound when I don't have what I need. I know how to, to, to operate when I'm in want. At the end of the day, none of this stuff really matters. It's all about serving God, and I can operate in any situation. And we, we kind of have to be like that, too. We have to be ready for whatever's to come and not be attached to these things. But the point of it is that Benedict seemed to be very, very reasonable with, with his rule, his famous rule of St. Benedict. And there are really two things that, that made a big difference uh, to his rule. He insisted on two things, permanence and obedience. And that really helped his communities to really thrive. You, you couldn't just leave his, his monastery and say, oh, you know what, there's another Benedictine monastery down the road that I like better. I, I like the abbot better. He's not as harsh. Um, I think I'm going to go there and said, no, once you were there, once you're plugged into a monastery, you had to stay there. You had to stay there unless you had orders to go to another place. And then the second thing was obedience. You had to be obedient to the abbot. And by the way, that, that word abbot means father, somewhat like the word pope means papa, mean, means father. And, and that's, that's often the toughest thing. And I've had many many priests say this to me, and I, I don't know too many monks, so I haven't been able to ask them, but, but priests will often say, you know, people think, lay people think that celibacy is the hardest challenge of the priesthood. In, in all likelihood, it's probably obedience. You have to be obedient to your bishop, even if you don't like the guy, even if you don't think he's necessarily a holy bishop. You, 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 have, to, some, you have to really just kind of eat your pride and be obedient. And, and we have to be obedient as well. You think, hey, I'm a layperson, I'm free. I no, you have to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And there are people that we always have to answer to, whether it be your boss, whether it be your spouse, whether it be you name it. And God himself, obviously, we've got to be obedient to God and the, the will of God for our lives. And really, there's, there's three ways that we can react to that. There's three stages that we can kind of go through in obedience, if you will. And very often we fight against the will of God if we know what, what it is that he wants us to do and it kind of conflicts with our sinful nature and what, what we're kind of drawn to or something we don't want. We can fight against it. We can fight against it. We can run away from his calls. Maybe that's happened to you. We can fight the will of God, but then we can get to a place where we're sort of resigned to the will of God. All right, all right, I'll do it. But it's not exactly willing obedience. It's not exactly loving obedience, is it? We can be resigned to it. Okay, I guess this is, this is the situation. I can't change it then we have to go from that to really accepting it and loving it. And that's really the last phase, loving the will of God. Choosing that which I did not choose, as one spiritual writer said. And this is what Benedict demanded of all the monks, that they had to obey, not only to not only obey all, all of the aspects of the, the rule, but to obey their abbot without delay, without delay. And they had to be willing. They had to actually want to do it. They had to love it because they had to see this as a manifestation of God's will for them. It's kind of like even if you're a layperson, you have a spiritual director, and on the Inner Life program on Relevant Radio, it's all about spiritual direction. You have to be obedient to your spiritual director. Otherwise, you're, you're just trying to game the system. And I'll, 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 I'll sort of follow his directives, my spiritual coach, if I like them. Well, you're not going to be successful there. You have to sort of trust that Jesus is using this person to speak to you, even if it goes against your your whims or your, your, your own personal desires. And you really can't go wrong with that. You really can't go wrong with that. Because again, if he's off track, if he's not hearing from God, when you go before the pearly gates, you can always say, 
I just did what, what he told me to do. I mean, he was my spiritual director. He had that grace of state. And if he's not hearing from you, well, that's kind of his problem. But, but I, I did my part. And, and God will be pleased with that. Because the, the virtue of obedience is really, really hard for us as modern men and women. But it's something that's really, really pleasing to God. Okay, we got to take a quick break here on the Kale Clark Show. But we'll have much more right after this. 888-914-9149. Don't go anywhere. live it and share it too it's the kale clark show have a question give kale a call at 888-914-9149 hey welcome back to the program 888-914-9149 is the number to call got an incredible story for you about the midsummer classic you're not going to miss so stay tuned my favorite rendition of the midsummer classic something that happened a few years ago that um People are still talking about today. All right, but we're talking also about St. Benedict. Uh, it's the feast day of St. Benedict of Nursia, who really kind of established his famous rule for monks and really affected uh, Western civilization and the monastic movement in a great way. And again, this does apply to you and I as lay people as well. Think about the evangelical councils, right? Monks make these vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Th- that is a direct confrontation with the spirit of the world, as it were. Because what's the world hooked on? Money, sex, and power, right? The antidote to unmitigated greed, of course, is the spirit of poverty. Now, you and I live in the middle of the world, and we, we do have to own things. We do have to get from point A to point B. We have to have a car. We have to get our kids to school. We have, sometimes have to pay for those schools. Um, these days, that's becoming more and more prevalent. People pulling their kids out of public schools to to and, and really sacrificing to send them to private schools where they're not going to be indoctrinated with all kinds of things that uh, are contrary to reality. We know what you know what that is, and so there we need resources. We we live in the world. We need clothes to wear. We need a roof over our heads, but we can't be attached to these things. And that's, that's really what the spirit of poverty is all about, to be able to use the resources of this world for the glory of God and for other people. And there are lots of examples of this in the Gospels, by the way. There were people of means who followed Jesus. I think about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were well-to-do members of high society in Jerusalem, and they put their resources at the disposal of the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea, of course, donating his tomb, his property, uh, for Jesus to have a proper burial. Uh, think about some of the women that, that followed the, the apostolic band. Uh, the wife of Herod Stewart, I mean, big political guy. His wife was, was hey, you know, donating cash to to make sure the apostles had, had something to eat. And so, anyways, the, the bottom line is to try to use our stuff, try to take care of it, try not to be attached to it, and not to make these items little little gods, idols in our lives. And so, the antidote to... We need to use money, but the antidote to greed, of course, is poverty. And poverty, chastity, obedience. Another way of saying chastity is maybe a more modern way of saying it is purity. 
it's purity. And, and obviously, our culture is near obsessed with impurity. And I, I don't think I need to say much more about that. And then unmitigated power. Um, again, this is why we talked about obedience uh, before the break. This is one of the hardest things to, to practice in the modern world, whether it's to your boss, uh, to a spouse, um, just subjugating the ego. Ego is the enemy, right? Uh, we want power. We want to be the masters of our own lives. And this really goes back to the original sin, right? Uh, eat the fruit and you'll be like God. You'll, you'll know all things. You'll have all power. Uh, why should you submit yourself? To anyone, even even Almighty God, and so that, that's that's one of the things, that, one of the ways in which the evangelical councils of of monks can apply in our own lives right now. And so, I, I just think the, the cool thing too about about um, Saint Benedict and and uh, Eusto Gonzalez talks about this kind of drawing a drawing a, a portrait of him, so to speak, is that what what happened when monks kind of went off the rails? Well. If a monk was not doing his duty or he wasn't living these virtues, poverty, chastity, and obedience, well, you would take the guy aside one-on-one and try to talk to him about it. And this is exactly what Jesus prescribes in the gospel. Hey, if, you, if, you, if your brother or sister has a fault, take that person aside, try to reason with them, try to talk to them, do a little fraternal correction. If that doesn't work, then take somebody else with you. And if that doesn't work, well, eventually you have to bring it to the church. And if that doesn't work, they're going to have to get excommunicated, if you will. And that's kind of the extreme medicine as as it were and something like that happened in in the benedictine monasteries and so if a monk went off the rails and he didn't repent you know you sort of tried to talk to him one-on-one you were allowed to do that two times if that didn't work then you'd bring him before the other guys you bring him before the community if that didn't work he would be excommunicated so he wouldn't be allowed to have communion literally excommunication he wouldn't be allowed to communicate with the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord in the Eucharist. Also, he wouldn't be able to eat those meals. He wouldn't be able to get to the cafeteria. He'd have to go to the uh, the BK drive-thru, I guess, you know, on the outskirts of Monte Cassino. Um, he wasn't allowed to have contact with the other monks. And if he still wouldn't repent, they would actually whip this guy. I guess they'd have to find him in order to do this, but uh, you might say that's extreme. That was the time. Not saying it was a good thing. But if that didn't work, well, then they would finally say, hey, you're out. You can't come back. But even then, if he repented, he, he could come back. He could still come back. And he was allowed, and, the, and this, this whole process could happen three times for, for one guy. And then if it happens a third time, that, that's it. He, he can never go back to the monastery. But I think this is pretty patient. Second chances upon second chances upon second chances. So the bottom line is that Benedict knew that human beings... Are, we're fallible. We, we, we can fall into sin. We can fall into error. We can fall into obstinate patterns. And human human nature is weak, and we, we need God to strengthen us. And so God, God knows this as well. And so there, there was opportunity for, for forgiveness. And the other thing that you probably have heard about uh, St. Benedict is this idea of physical labor, this famous statement, ora et labora in Latin, prayer and work, work and prayer. Everybody had to participate in some sort of physical labor. You couldn't say, well, you know, I'm a smart guy. My job is to study. I, I'm just going to prepare homilies and, and talks. And, and you guys can kind of work work the fields or whatever the case may be because a lot of them produced produce. And, and no, you, everybody had to take a turn. Everybody had to cook. Even if you weren't a great cook, the, the cooks were changed every week. And 
And this was a big deal. In fact, at Mass, they would have this special ceremony for the changing of the cooks. Uh, and this is a big deal. So you sort of saw this as part of your service to God. So we all have to kind of pitch in. And, and how can we kind of look at this in our own lives today? Well, there are ways that we can all pitch in, whether you're young or old. You can you can pitch in in the home. You can help with the mission. And you can think about your spouse. You can, you know, guys, you can ask your spouse, what's one thing I can take off your plate today that can, that can help you in your duties? Um, share some of the burden. And Women can do that for their husbands as well. There's no question about it. Kids can do it for their parents, and parents can do that for their kids. What? How can I help you? How, how can I? How can I serve you? And then, and then the last thing is is prayer, which obviously comes first, right? It's prayer and work. Ora et labora, and prayer is the foundation of everything. And Benedict knew that. He knew that this project would never work unless prayer was the foundation. And so. This idea of how monks prayed at various times throughout the day. They would actually pray eight times every day. They would pray seven times during daylight hours and once in the middle of the night. And Psalm 119 uh, says, Seven times a day I praise you. And at midnight I rise to praise you. So they, they would wake up from their sleep in the middle of the night to praise God as well. And so they would start off at dawn, and then they're known by these hours. And this, this is where the liturgy of the hours kind of comes from in, middle, in, in many ways. This kind of got started during the Middle Ages. So it's matins, uh, lauds, the other names of the, of the times were prime, terse, sext. Uh, the other times were called nun, vespers, compline. You've probably heard of compline. And so they would read the Psalms, they would read Scripture together, and... That's what they would do. They would actually read all of the Psalms at some point throughout throughout a week. And so they would know Scripture really, really well. And we have to kind of do that too. We have to we have to have these times of prayer throughout the day that are almost like it's almost like the telephone poles on I know a lot of telephone wires are usually buried underground now, but but when telephone poles were the norm and they're still out there in a lot of places, you you, ha- you can't place them too far apart and you can't place them too close together. And, and the wires, you don't want the wires to hit the ground. You've you got to spread them out. And so our prayer times that we have throughout the day are times with God, whether it's our morning offering, it's our, our morning prayer, our conversational prayer with God, our reading of the New Testament, our spiritual reading, our daily mass, daily rosary. Kind of try to spread those out throughout the day. And it really does, does make things, uh, make, help us keep the presence of God throughout the day. And we lay people have, have to do that as well, according to our state in life. You're listening to The K.O. Clark Show, 888-914-9149. So, and also, by the way, this is where, kind of where the rosary got its start as well. It was known as the poor man's psalter. Not everybody could afford to have the scriptures like they did um, in the monasteries, copies of the scriptures. But saying the Our Fathers, saying the Hail Marys, which are from scripture, of course, just reciting them. Eventually that became, as the, as the monks would cite all 150 psalms, they would eventually turn into Hail Marys for, for lay people, beads on a string, and that eventually became the rosary. And I know there's different arguments about the origins of the rosary, but that's, that's one of them. It's called the poor man's psalter. And so this is what the, the monks would do. They would pray and they would work. And they did a lot of work. They, 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 again, as I said earlier, helped preserve culture, books, copied manuscripts of the Bible, what are called illuminated manuscripts. Those are the ones with pictures in them. Um, 
other books, preserve them for generations to come. They would teach people. Uh, people would send their kids there to, to learn from the monks, and they sometimes wanted their kids to become monks. Uh, they created hospitals, pharmacies. Um, they, they sort of set up little hotels, hostels, where people could stay as they were traveling. And then, of course, agricultural land. They would farm the land. Don't forget, monks Monks made beer, too. They still do. They still do. One of my favorite beers in all the world, uh, Weinstefaner, uh, came from a Bavarian monastery. So how about that? The great work was done there. <laughs> so prayer and work, work and prayer, and study. They studied a lot, too. We've got to do that, too. What is study, really? Study essentially amounts to reading. You've you, you got to read. You've you got to fill your mind with uh, truths about the faith. And, and this will help you when you are meeting people in the secular world who, who don't know much about God. And um, they, they have a lot of arguments against God. Well, we've got to be well-formed and well-armed. And, and, and that often comes through reading great Catholic books and resources. So here, here's just one last thing, an example of how God's providence, something that seemed like a disaster at the time, actually really worked in the favor of St. Benedict and, and the monks in general. So in the year 589 AD, 6th century, the monastery that St. Benedict founded at Monte Cassino was unfortunately looted and burned by the Lombards, the evil Lombards. And so the monks, they, they had to take off. They had to, they had to go to Rome. And they, they sort of were bereft of all their earthly possessions, but they did have their famous rule of St. Benedict. And this actually was really, really providential. It was a terrible thing, but God turned it for his glory. And this tragedy was very providential because it was in Rome, when the, when the, when the monks of St. Benedict went to Rome, that's where Pope Gregory, Pope Gregory the Great, at the time he wasn't Pope, but Gregory found out about them, got to know them, and he was really, really impressed with them. And so when he became Pope, he, he made sure that the rule of St. Benedict spread all throughout the western part of the church to all the, all the other monasteries, and it became a big, big deal. And, and it really helped unite uh, the monasteries, common practices, the common rule. And so that probably wouldn't have happened if they hadn't gone to Rome, and that probably wouldn't have happened if, the, if this looting had not happened. So it's a great picture of how God can take everything uh, even bad stuff, and turn it to the advantage of his children. Romans eight twenty eight. God always works for the good of those who love him. And everything, and everything. So that is St. Benedict, and that is his feast day today. So he's a great saint, uh, saint to know. And producer Jim says, Vine Stefaner, that's a great beer. So here's to you, St. Benedict. Thanks for doing what you did following God's call and being a great example to us. Got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. 888-914-9149. Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. We like our beer flat as candy. We like our dogs with mustard and relish. We got a great picture, what's his name? Well, we can't even spell it. Hey, welcome back to the program. Hey, that's two nights in a row. We've had a song from the band Alabama. That's, of course, Cheap Seats, one of Jim's favorite songs. Well, lots of people will be in the Cheap Seats watching tonight's Major League Baseball All-Star Game from Seattle. It used to be called Safeco Field. It's now called, I think, T-Mobile Park. If I'm, I can never keep track of the naming rights. 
it's like the, the Sky Dome in Toronto. I refuse to call it the Rogers Center. It's still the Sky Dome to me. I'll never change. And, and there's something about those indelible memories from our childhood that, that really stand out. And one big memory, from I remember I was 16 years old, 1989. This really stands out to me. It's my favorite memory from the All-Star Game. And I do think that baseball's All-Star Game is the best of all the All-Star Games. Most of the other games, just, especially, they took away, by the way, Producer Jim, they took away the, the feature that whichever league won the uh, the All-Star Game would actually have home field advantage in the World Series. They used to do that, and whether it's the American League squad or the National League squad. And I guess that's not fair to to a team that has a great record, especially there's so much interleague play. They play each other so much uh, these days. I could see uh, the best uh, team with the best record in the league in either league, respectively. You know, feeling robbed if their if their all star brethren lost the game and they lost home field as a result. Maybe the World Series. I don't know. But you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Well, one of my favorite athletes of all time, probably my 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 most favorite overall. I have a favorite baseball player. I have a favorite basketball player. I have a favorite hockey player. But my athlete for all sports, really a man for all seasons, was another guy from Alabama. Speaking of Alabama, Bo Jackson. Vincent Edward Bo Jackson. And why was he called Bo? That was his nickname. His brother said he was like a boar hog. He was so strong. The first guy to be an NFL All-Pro and a Major League Baseball All-Star. And his, his only actual appearance... Uh, in the Major League Baseball All-Star Game was in the year 1989. And this game took place uh, in Anaheim, California, at Anaheim Stadium, where the California Angels are not called the California Angels anymore. They're the Los Angeles Angels. So it's where they used to play. The manager of the American League squad at that time was Tony La Russa and Rich Pye from Relevant Radio. Uh, he's cringing when I mention Tony La Russa because he's a big White Sox fan. But there was a time when Tony La Russa was a very successful manager for the Oakland Athletics, and he was managing the All-Star squad that year for the American League, and Bo Jackson from the Kansas City Royals, he told Jackson, LaRusa told Jackson, hey, you're going to actually lead off the game. You're going to be hitting leadoff. It was a gorgeous, sunny day in Anaheim, and guess who was calling the game? Tonight's game will be called, of course, by Joe Davis on Fox, but back then, it was the great, the late great, may he rest in peace, Vin Scully. And you're never going to guess who his broadcast partner was. It was none other than President Ronald Reagan. Yep, he was, the Gipper himself was in the booth with Vin Scully. He had just finished his second and final presidential term in 1988. Now it's 1989. He figures, I'm going to sit in the booth with Vin Scully and help call the All-Star Game. Now, at the time, Nike had just launched a new ad campaign centered around Bo Jackson called Bo knows. More on that a little bit later. The iconic commercial, which we'll play for you in a second, was scheduled to debut during the All-Star Game, the first commercial break in 1989. And people were really, really nervous. In the Nike Corporation, executives were actually watching the game. They were at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in Manhattan, and they were super nervous. There was a lot of debate on whether it was a smart idea to to create an ad campaign around this guy, Bo Jackson, whether to, to, to try to, to run with this. There was a lot of it, internal conflict and debate. And then this happened in the first inning of that game. 
And as Bo Jackson comes up, we talked about Ozzie Smith and you wearing a Cardinal uniform. Jackson wears baseball and football, and you did football. Uh, yes, I played the Gipper, but I also played for real in a much earlier time. But uh, that Bo down there, that's a pretty interesting hobby he has for his vacation. When baseball ends, he winds up uh, playing uh, playing football. I, I just, I don't know if there's ever been anyone doing it. Hey. He's remarkable, and look at that one. Bo Jackson says hello. That was President Ronald Reagan and Vin Scully on the call. The 1989 Major League All Star Game. The very first pitch was, and you got to see, you got to, you got to look this up on YouTube. Maybe we'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's an, it was an incredible home run by Bo Jackson. He he essentially golfed the very first pitch of the game from Rick Rushel of the Giants to the very deepest part of the ballpark. He hit it into the black. And, and as you know, if you've ever been to a baseball game, there are seats. Right behind center field, right dead center field, deepest part of the ballpark that they'll cover in a, like a black tarp or a dark green color or something to provide a hitting background for the players. Well, anyways, it's very tough to hit a home run there. Bo Jackson just golfs it. It was a really low pitch. It was probably not even a strike. And he just golfed it. Right, I mean, incredible homer. And by the way, sidebar, the very next batter also homered. It was Wade Boggs from the Boston Red Sox, so back-to-back homers. Not a great... Start to the game for old Rick from the Giants. But anyways, so the Nike executives watching this game in Mickey Mantle's restaurant in Manhattan, they went ballistic. I mean, the beer was spilling. They were all hugging and high-fiving each other. I mean, it was just a mob scene because right after this, the very first commercial break, they played this iconic commercial. the great Bo Diddley uh, on guitar and he provided the soundtrack for that famous Bo Nose commercial P- apologies for the audio quality that was the best we could find it is from 1989 after all and of course that's a nod to Bo playing all these sports obviously professional baseball and football at the same time first person to ever do, do that although of course Deion Sanders uh, kind of followed him in that 
uh, with the Yankees and in the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons. But nobody did it better than Bo. I mean, he was basically a cheat code. If you ever used Bo Jackson and the Raiders in Tecmo Bowl, if you remember that game, I mean, nobody could possibly beat you. It was amazing. And, yeah, so he had Kirk Gibson from the L.A. Dodgers at the time. He said Bono's baseball. And then, of course, Jim Everett from the L.A. Rams, Bono's football. McEnroe, Bono's tennis. It went on and on and on until they got to shots of Bo allegedly playing hockey in a Los Angeles Kings jersey. And then Wayne Gretzky just says, no. <laughs> no. I, I love it. I absolutely love that. Anyway, so uh, that was in 19. 19- 89, the Midsummer Classic, the All-Star Game. So we'll see if tonight's game lives up to that. I don't know if anything can top that moment. But uh, last night, hey, member of my Toronto Blue Jays, the official baseball club of the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, Vladdy Guerrero, Vlad the Impaler, if you will, he finally won the Home Run Derby gym. And did you know that he, he joins his dad, Vladdy Guerrero Sr., as the only father-son combination to win the home run derby that's fantastic yeah isn't that amazing maybe you and sebastian can do that (laughs) you can still make the cardinals i don't know man i i kind of gave up on that about 15 years ago (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't hit 60 in the cages so (laughs) oh man i'll tell you but uh, yeah in seattle last night the home run derby um a few years ago vladimir guerrero jr set the record for most home runs in a single round i think he had hit I can't remember what the number was. I think it was around 29 at the time. Uh, this is in 2019. But he just kind of ran out of gas, and uh, he faced Pete Alonso from the Mets in the uh, final round he lost, and then Alonso, I think, won back-to-back. Anyways, so Vladdy Guerrero Jr., he was the All-Star Game MVP in 2021. He finally gets his home run derby championship last night. Kind of paced himself this time, and he won and beat uh, Randy uh, Rosarena from the uh, Tampa Bay Rays uh, last night in the final. And, uh, hey... A Blue Jay flying high in the Emerald City last night. And uh, anyway, so Vladimir Guerrero Sr., um, who played for the Montreal Expos, the the Angels, among other teams, he actually won the Home Run Derby in 2007 with the Angels. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was eight years old. He doesn't even remember it at the time, but, but now he's done it. So that's a pretty cool story as well. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Let's go to Daniel in New Mexico. Hi, Daniel. Howdy. Uh, Back in the 70s, Bo Diddley played dances at our church parish hall. you got to be kidding me. I I kid you not, I couldn't believe it was him. (laughs) Well, I didn't know who he was until I went home and told my mother, and she was shocked. He he lived out here in the the mid-70s. He was a deputy sheriff. Marty McFly, Back to the Future, when he's swimming across the stage. Bo Diddley would do that before before breaks, you know, and he would walk on his knees and play. he put on a heck of a show for, you know, a small town Catholic church. I I am honestly shocked. I can't believe that Bo Diddley would play at at your local Catholic church. That was that was that was on his itinerary on his on his it was one of his yes, tour dates. Yes, That's amazing. It, yes, it was. Yes, well, I it guess, was. I, I guess I don't know Diddley either. I don't know. I don't know much about this. He, he lived in New Mexico as well. In in the seventies, yes, he did. Before he moved to Florida. Wow, wow, the great, the great Bo Diddley. That's an amazing story. Thank you for calling in and sharing that, Daniel in New Mexico. Wow, I never would have guessed that. Bo Diddley, a fantastic blues guitarist, unbelievable, and of course figured prominently in that Bo Knows uh, famous ad from Nike. Let's go now to Paul 
in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, welcome back, Paul. Two nights in a row. Wow. Oh, hi, Kale. Uh, I wondered if uh, in your pilgrimages, if uh, you ever checked out any monasteries uh, in Greece, like northern Mount Athos, northern Greece. I have not been to Greece. I have. That's one of my great regrets. And, and maybe one day I'll have to lead a pilgrimage in, in the footsteps of St. Paul. You know, go to uh, modern-day Turkey and, and Greece. Have, have you been there, Paul? No, I have not, but I've read a lot about it, and it sounds very much like a place I'd like to visit. But I thought oh. if you could spend a few days in a monastery or a seat or maybe a hermit cell, mm. uh, it would really be really be quite an experience. That that would be uh, good for me, I think. That would be good for me. Sometimes when I go on retreat, I think, yeah, I could be, I, I could, I could live this life. I could be a monk because, so I don't really need a whole lot of stuff. I, I kind of like just, you know, what do you need? I mean, you, you need something to eat, you need something to wear, you need a place to sleep, and 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 life kind of gets simplified. And, and this is this is this is part of part of detachment. No, but I have not been to Greece. I have not been to Mount Athos. I've not been to Mount Olympus. I certainly don't look like Mr. Olympus. That, that's for sure. Uh, but it's a place I, I'd love to go. I'd love to go. By the way, um, Jim, producer Jim, I've got a quiz for you. I hate to put you on the spot, Uh-oh. but <laughs> it just kind of made me think of this. Um, this call from our friend Paul. Where, do you know? Do you know where the first French fries were made? Um, either Fran- France or Belgium. No, in Greece. Ah, <laughs> ah that's classic. Uh, that's. That's such a Kale Clark joke. I, that is, probably, that's classic vintage Kale Clark. Yeah, if this was my last show, if that's the final straw, it's it's been great, everybody. Thank you for listening. But uh, no, well, thank you. Yeah, I had to throw that one in there. That's that's one of my best. I, I don't. I think I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here, Jim. But I tell you, it's, I love that joke. I, so everyone out there, feel free to use it. I haven't copyrighted it. Um, it's kind of just out there, right? And. Uh, this is what pre- preachers do. They, they they steal things from each other all the time, and so do comedians. That's okay. That's okay. God's truth is unchained, and so are bad jokes. Anyways, thanks for joining me on the Kale Clark Show. Stay tuned for Trending. Great, great show coming up. And, of course, Father Rocky with the Family Rosary Across America. God bless. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy. <laughs>